So why don't I actually focus my time on how people choose to buy instead of how Google ranks things? Welcome to another edition of Leading Matters, and listen, if you're a frequent listener, you know I'm always gushing about how awesome the episode is and how much I love talking to my guest, uh, but I just, you know, re-listened to this episode with Will, Rental, uh, excuse me, Will Reynolds of Sear, a fantastic global digital marketing agency located right here in Philadelphia, and I'm like, man, this is awesome stuff. Like, I, there's times, look, I'm going to be honest with you. There are times when I'm like, I don't know, like, I love the podcast, but it's just, you know, as, as my activity increases, it gets harder and harder to produce and do. Uh, and I think to myself, maybe I won't, you know, I, I even take weeks off. You know, I'm, I'm not going to kid you. I'm not as diligent about getting the episodes out every week. So I think to myself, oh, gee, maybe, maybe I just will lower prioritize this. But then I go back and edit an episode like today's with Wills, and I'm like blown away by the amount of insight and value, honesty, uh, transparency that my guests uh, afford me through this conversation that I have with them, and then me in turn having that ability to share it with you. So I listen. If you listen to the whole thing, this is a great example of company growth uh, and, and some of the challenges that are met along the way. Some, you know, being brave and bold enough to be kind of counter to what the industry standards are, and then capitalizing on that kind of countercultural, for lack of a better word, approach to improve the way that you're doing business and improve the way you're serving. Uh, an honest discussion about diversity. I think a re- maybe one, I asked the diversity question quite a bit, and Will is incredibly, uh, again, transparent with how he considers diversity and how he kind of realized that diversity isn't just a thing to make you a nice company, but a thing to make you a better company. He's got a really fresh perspective on that. Um, And I had been chasing Will down for a while. As a matter of fact, I'm posting this just a day before an event. It is August 10th today. So if you're listening to it today, check out the link on the show notes. And if you are in the Philadelphia region, head down and check out his event. It's always a great event. Listen, I've been going on too long. I know you want to get to it. I do too. So here is my interview with Will Reynolds, the founder of Seer. My guest today founded a digital marketing agency in 2002, and it has steadily grown every year since. And it's now home to over 100 employees on both coasts and serves businesses literally across the globe. With specialization in pay-per-click, SEO, and analytics, his agency, Seer, fuels that growth through passionate, data-driven digital marketing that is focused on connecting communities around a common purpose. He is Will Reynolds, and in addition to successfully leading his agency, he also sits on the board of Covenant House, an organization serving the homeless and runaway youth in the Philadelphia area. In fact, if you follow Will's Twitter feed in the November time frame, you'll probably see his annual sleep out where he spends one night out sleeping in the elements in November to raise money and awareness for the organization. Now, a little backstory here. I've been bugging Will to be on Leading Matters for over a year, so I'm really thankful to have him <laughs> on. Will, thanks so much for joining me today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Ah, no, no, my pleasure is mine. Believe me. So, look, I want to jump right into it because I have so much I, I kind of want to explore. But I realize, you know, I take it for granted. I've been following your work for uh, some time, but maybe some of my audience may not be aware of Sear or Will Reynolds. So, for the benefit of the audience that might be hearing you for the first time, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and Sear uh, to help them kind of level set where we're headed with this conversation? 
Sure. Uh, so um, I founded Sear, like you said, in 2002. Um, I think you did a great intro on what we do. Um, basically, you know, when you boil down what I want to wake up in the morning to do and have our company do is to recognize that, you know, people now use the internet, mostly the web and social media to help them find solutions to their problems, right? You know, people don't search for sport. They're, they're sure. searching for something because they're looking to find an answer to something. And I want to help clients who, uh, who believe in trying to answer those questions for their customers really, really well. Um, I think everything else about our company, you actually caught in the intro, so good work. <laughs> no, no problems. Like I said, I've been a fan of your of your work for some time. You know, it's interesting, and, and uh, I love the way you approach it because so much – people get so angst-ridden over SEO algorithm changes and things like that. But I, it still seems as though even though the algorithms change fast and, and furiously and there's so much traffic and volume and you know digital and mobile computing is so ubiquitous today, even though all that's true, it seems like the discipline is still somewhat infantile, if you will, kind of immature. In other words, what I mean by that, the, what we as a business do to serve those that are seeking questions, I mean, is that a fair assumption? Do you think there's still a lot of maturation that, that has to happen in the mindsets of businesses that are trying to capitalize on the need for information? I think the businesses do, but to be honest with you, I think the practitioners do even more. Really? Yeah, because I mean, the businesses, like we taught business how to judge search success. And, you know, we taught them to care about page rank. No business owner was caring about page rank, right? We sure. taught them, oh, I got you a page rank six, you know, and they're like, okay, well, I <laughs> guess that's a big deal. And then it was, oh, Google made this algorithm change and like, this is why we've got to do it. So I think we've trained the monster that now we have to slay. Is it because I've always because I look at social media and just media in general almost in the same kind of category is that people are so affixed to the metrics and metrics certainly matter right but sometimes we get caught in this kind of tyranny of metrics where we fail to see the the nuance of of how we're educating and, and what we're doing to inform people I mean is that I mean how do you help clients kind of uh, face the fact that listen they have to be a lot more uh, credible transparent real and authentic when they're building content that serves their would be audience. Give me that one again. <laughs> sure. What I'm saying is that my, my I, the way I see it, especially when I help my clients, is that there is a tyranny of metrics, right? In other words, they get so fixed in yes. on the metrics that they lose the forest for the trees a little bit. I guess so to simplify the question is how do you help your clients kind of break out of being so enslaved? to Not that the metrics aren't important, but how do I break out of the enslavement to just be uh, you know, focused on the metrics? Well, you know, I, um, I, uh, fortunately, I think, well, it's, it's actually, it's a balancing act. Let me start from there. You know, there were times where I saw where search was going, but where search was going and what the reality of the day was, were two different things. And sometimes, you know, I always tell my clients, let me worry about page rank and those kinds of things, but you should really judge me on my ability to drive revenue over a certain amount of time. Now, what's really tough these days is everybody's doing quote unquote content marketing and that's fine. But, but it's the people who are sticking to it for the long haul are the ones that get the most value. So we find that it's, it's ideal for us to find clients who fit our ethos and believe that it's actually worth the investment to build content, to educate people throughout their purchase journey, not just when they're showing up to buy, which everybody else wants to optimize for. Sure. Um, and we believe that when you do that, you build brand, you build brand recognition so when they're ready to make that purchase, you're more likely to stand out because they remember you. 
you know, I again, there's so much packed in that that answer. I don't want to explore some of that, but before I do, I'm realizing that one of the things that really attracts me to how you run your business and the way you communicate with the marketplace is that you, you know, outside in anyway, I'm always struck by the the seemingly perfect blend of what you just discussed. In other words, the the attention to the necessity of tactical execution blended with the the nuance of what real strategy necessitates in other words you know the the color and the the again that authenticity have you always been able to strike that balance with how you lead and if so like like how have you honed that skill oh man um i don't know for me it's like natural like it's uh here's the thing right I, i i tend to give a lot of respect to the people who have built google right and the people who work at Google, they're very smart people. And I think one day when I, I woke up and said, why am I trying to outsmart them? Why am I trying to find little things in the algorithm that I can exploit for you know three, six months, uh, maybe 12 if I'm lucky, maybe longer if I'm really lucky. But like they're always going to catch those things. So why don't I actually focus my time on how people choose to buy instead of how Google ranks things? And I think it was about three years ago, I woke up and said, oh my God, I've spent over 10,000 hours of my life understanding how Google and AltaVista work and search engines work. And I've spent basically probably not more than 100 trying to understand how people work. And when I woke up and decided that about three years ago, I really went whole hog on this concept of audiences over algorithms, you know, people over positions. Like, you know, just because you rank well doesn't mean you're going to actually get conversions and revenue. We've all clicked on things that rank at the top of Google that are horrible answers to our questions. And I think that people in my industry have somewhere along the way completely forgotten that Google doesn't buy squat from your clients. People do. Mm -hmm. And if you don't take the time to understand why people choose to buy, then you're only really solving half of the equation. Now, do you find, because I I see that a lot as well. In other words, we talked about content marketing as a strategy. It's a reality today. But I see an increasing pushback on it. And and when I dive into that, why are people frustrated with content marketing? It seems to me that there's an inherent frustration, especially if you're talking about salespeople in a more complex sale where that buying journey isn't transactional, but the relationship matters a lot. The education process matters a lot. So the sales team gets frustrated because so much is done to fill that top of the funnel, and they feel as though the sales team, that is, that that quantity uh, you know, really impacts quality and ultimately doesn't change the job of the salesperson at all because they still have to prospect. They still have to get the account early into their sales cycle. I mean, can we address some of that frustration with what you just talked about, understanding with, with, with you know, really in making an investment and understanding who the people are we're selling to, what, what the impact of our products and service has to their career, their lives, what they're trying to do? I mean, or is that kind of too altruistic? Do you think that's a, 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 a valid path to take to improve how we're using some of these tactics? Uh, it's the path I'm going to take. And if I'm wrong, well, well, I'll find (laughs) out, right? Um, But to me, it's a more compelling opportunity when I can sit in front of a client and say, hey, let's really try to understand the things that we can build that will really help solve problems for people in your space. And on that, that's how I think we can become a leader, right? And the thing for me is Google has gotten really good at understanding brand signals. Mm -hmm. So all of a sudden, you saw SEOs looking for the same old tools in the toolbox and wondering why they weren't working. It's because Google's gotten better and better at understanding brands and how people react to brands and how to make brands rank better in search engines. And how do brands become brands? 
They don't do it overnight, right? You actually have to put the work in to become a known brand. Like, you know, Amazon didn't become Amazon because they ranked well. Um, in my opinion, Amazon's Amazon because they're innovative, um, they're easy, uh, and they work, right? And whenever I see an Amazon link somewhere in the Google results, I know if I click on that thing, I'm getting my yeah. stuff in two days. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, that's a good example, right? It, it almost seems freeing in a way, right? In other words, like, I, I think marketers in general kind of got tra entrapped into the operational realities of, of their day-to-day, -day, right? But it almost seems for people in that profession, right, that is a freeing opportunity because if I am truer to who I am as a company, reflecting our, our brand values and our culture ex, you know, externally, that good things happen. In other words, if I'm on target and I'm connecting with the right marketplace, that it almost seems like it frees marketers to really do what they're trained to do. I mean, again, is that connecting too many dots there or do you think it is a freeing opportunity for those in the profession? No, actually, to be honest with you, I think I looked at my own business and said, how did a guy who never wanted to run a business and who went around Philadelphia knocking on the doors of other entrepreneurs to try to work at their companies. And when none of them would interview me, and my background was in education. So like, how is a guy who doesn't know doodly squat about finance? We had a year where we spent like eight grand on Red Bull. I didn't even know it. Um, you know, I'm a teacher. Like, how does a guy like that build a company that's growing like crazy with basically without a sales team, right? And I looked at it and went, oh, you know why? Because we built a brand. We share what we know with our clients, with our industry, and we don't keep things behind the curtain and try to call it proprietary or black box. We have a rule at SEER, and the rule is nothing's proprietary. Anything you work on mm. that you think could help our industry, you put out there. And I watch how many people are buying trade show booths and, and, and tchotchkes and bullshit to try to grow their lead database. Yeah. And it's like, why don't you just share what you know with people? And I think people are so afraid to do that because they've got to have some trade secret rabbit in the hat. I tell clients straight up, there's no rabbit in the hat. I'm just going to outwork everybody else. Yeah. You know, I'm going to I'm going to in out innovate everybody else. But it's not, I don't know. For me, it's super freeing, and I think you can grow a business that way because that's why I'm sitting here talking to you. Yeah, you know, right? listen, I've grown I, I, the business that way. No, absolutely. And again, I've watched it grow right from again outside in. And again, I'm in the Philadelphia area, so I benefit from seeing some of the local coverage and whatnot. So I, I and that's why I've always wanted to connect with you, right? Because I I see you execute on that, and it seems that that level of authenticity and transparency from a selfless perspective. In other words. Look, everybody gives selflessness kind of lip service, right? But if I'm truly serving those that I care to serve, I mean truly and in, in, in indeed giving them value, then inevitably I get the at-bat, right? In other, in other words, who am I – you know, you, you mentioned Amazon invested so much time in, in uh, doing what they do well that we just inherently trust them. So there's it, – it always, I always wrestle with – I guess I'll, I'll frame the question this way. How do you help a client – well, let me ask it this way. Do you say no to clients that just don't have that DNA in them, that they can't – see that investment from this perspective is ultimately what's going to deliver the sort of success that they need. Uh, yeah, I just did it yesterday. Um, I have a call later today to deliver the message. Um, but yesterday, you know, great client. Oh, we'd love to work with them. Um, you know, they've raised good money. They're, they're doing real stuff. They've got some great content. They've got a great offering. And their point of contact said, hey, you know, um, I'm going to need a company. Uh, I've heard great things about Sear. We found you. We'd love to work with you. Uh, and I need this many links a month at this domain authority. And I'm going, what? <laughs> like, if your CEO was in the room, I think your CEO would puke, right? Or hopefully, because it's like, no, I, and I'm telling them, like, hey, you know, I want, I want you to hold me accountable to my ability to drive leads and revenue, right? Um, and they're going, yeah, that sounds good eventually. But for now, I need this many links a month at this domain authority. And I just want to punch myself in the face. 
because it's like most search agencies, I think, have run away from the real metrics that actually run businesses, like revenue. How many newsletter signups am I driving? How many leads am I driving? Um, am I watching people search for your brand more as a result of the content that we built? Like real metrics. Instead, we've gotten these fake puppet metrics like, you know, domain authority and number of links and in some ways even rankings. And, and like you would think that if somebody was willing to hold themselves and their company accountable to revenue, you'd jump on it. Instead, this person and this company is just not able, I don't believe, to really overcome mm. the traditional metrics of, of what they consider success. So we're going to say no. Hmm. Is it is it ha that didn't happen overnight? I'm sure. I know early on we want to capture revenue because we want to keep the business going, right? How how did you come to that realization that listen that the the type of business that matters to us is in, is important? So we're going to qualify and quantify who we're serving in that way. Um, I don't know. So from the beginning, like you know, before Google Analytics had an API, we actually built a way to scrape all the uh, the data out of Google Analytics um, via email attachments because we wanted to track our work past rankings. And I was doing that in 2006, maybe. Um, it was before Google Analytics had an API. We, we were so dedicated to knowing that the work we did drove actual revenue that it's always kind of been a true north for us. Um, and as a result, you know, uh, with putting enough out there in the community, mm -hmm. we get a lot of inbound leads. A lot of people want to work with us and it's put us in the position to be able to be choosy about the clients that we would like to work with. Now, you know, I, I would love to work with this company. Um, God knows, you know, Sear definitely could use the work. Sure. Um, you know, we would love to work with them. But, you know, we, I can't say publicly to, to people who want to join my team, this is what we believe, this is what we're going to do, and then privately go, oh, man, well, this project could be really nice, so let's take it on. I think that's disingenuous for my team, too, to say, hey, I'm going to sell you a bill of goods on how we want to operate, but then I'm going to be totally fine just closing companies who don't believe what we believe. Yeah. Well, let me let me investigate that a little bit, right? Because you're talking about just the culture and the values that are important to see here, right? And and I see, look, I have leaders in the show. That's what I do, right? And the common denominator almost every time is, listen, our vision, our, our mission, I call it MVP, right? Our mission, our vision, our values, rather, and our, our, our purpose matter, right? In other words, where we're headed, what's important to us is who we are as, as professionals and as people, and then what is our intent to serve the marketplace? I mean, it seems to me, again, this is outside looking in, but I certainly hear it in your voice, that your culture and your values are, are very important to see. I mean, what? It, how did you establish that? Because, again, many times I find that it's not like something that I initially set out to do, but people that are good leaders end up there. Right? They end up in the destination of, hey, our mission, values, and, and purpose are important to us, and here's where we're going to protect them. I mean, what, what was that journey like for you from 2002 into you know, 14, 15 years later? I, you know, I think um, I think it's it's been very freeing for me to not be money motivated, uh, and that's enabled me at times of making tough decisions to make the call that I felt right about. Um, like I said, when I started early, you know, it's like I went to school to be a teacher, so I'm obviously not you know out there like trying to make a ton of money. Um, it was never my uh, my drive. So I think sometimes when you're running an organization, there are times where things are very financially prudent for your company. And not necessarily always great, or, or you don't know if they're going to be good or not for for culture. And um, for me, I don't have that that like angel on one shoulder and the devil on the other, because I don't have anybody that I have to pay back or that has a percentage of the company that can tell me what to do, um, which enables me to really run things in the in, in in my vision. And because I'm not overly, like I said, I'm not overly money motivated. I think. Um, Sometimes those tough decisions, when they come up, they're usually relatively easy for me to make. 
What about uh, imparting that to your team, right, so they can internalize that, right? Because look, when we start to hire people, they may or may not match exactly with where our values are. I mean, what have you done to, especially as you've grown, right? Because it's easy, maybe maybe easier when it's a small team. But as the team gets to be larger and hierarchy starts to present itself, it can be more of a challenge. I mean, what have you as a leader done to make sure that those values are internalized with the people that work for SEER? Uh, you know, I think it's just like keeping the right folks around. I mean, I've got, um, when I look at my 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 management layer, my team lead layer, you know, most of them have been with me for five plus years. Um, and that's like, you know, a good 10 people in those roles. Uh, so I think that, you know, they've seen, they were close enough to me when the company was much smaller and they really got to see me make tough decisions. So I think it's made it easier for them to kind of have a really strong feel for the way that, the way that I would go about solving a problem or, uh, you know, when there's tough decisions that need to be made, they've seen me do it and they're close enough to managing the team that then they know what I would do. And it's, it's relatively easy. It's very quick when you know, or you can tell very quickly when people are, um, are, are, are advising their team to do things that are against your ethos because it just pops up really quick. And I really wear what I believe like on my sleeve. Mm -hmm. So I think it's not just up to the management. I think that the other people under the and on their teams are kind of like, that doesn't sound like something that Will says that we should be doing in yeah. this situation. Like, let's work that out. Yeah. So, um, so, you know, I think it's just like, you know, walking the walk day to day. People see it. I mean, your team will challenge you. Yeah. Right. And they see it. Yeah, what about uh, talent acquisition? I know, I, you know it's one of the things I do to, to prep for these things, and I haven't looked at yours in a while, but I did, I remember last year when I was looking to catch up with you, is I always look at their, their talent acquisition process, right? And I, I re recall that you guys had a, a pretty unique kind of um, you know, questions that you asked. In other words, you wanted people to communicate as part of their application process a little bit more nuanced to who they were, not just the black and white of their uh, CV or the resume. I mean, are you still doing that? And then, and if so, like, what is that? Does that make it more of a cumbersome effort to hire people, or is it helped to get the right people in your talent acquisition efforts? You know, I don't know if it helps us to get the right people, but it helps save us time from identifying the wrong people. So, you know, we are extremely limited on um, time at Sear, and I always think of ways that we can be more efficient. And one of the ways we can be more efficient is asking some of the right questions on uh, on intake forms that help us to sort out the people who aren't going to be a good fit. So we do that both on the BD side as well as on the the people side. You know, um, you know, if I ask you, hey, what's your most inspirational piece of content you've seen, and I get a bad answer back, mm -hmm. then great, I've just saved myself an hour on an interview. <laughs> yeah, that's fair, right? Uh, I don't have the time. It's it's the reality. Of of my situation and the team situation is I literally do not have the time to uh, to to sit on the phone with somebody for an hour if I know that 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 it's like a complete mismatch. But if I don't ask the right questions, sometimes you jump on the phone and you spend time on an interview and you go, man, you know that wasn't good for for me. It probably wasn't good for them either. And you know I know I could always use an hour back in my day. You know, it also I think speaks back to. Our, our brand as well, right? Because I think a lot of times who are, who we employ represent our brand externally as well, right? So do you think is kind of the new area of exploring with some of the people I've had on, and it's do you think that our talent acquisition needs to be very closely aligned to who we are in the marketplace, not just initially as an employer, because employee brand obviously matters to the talent community we're looking to target, but also to who we are to our customers? Ooh. It's a good one. Um, I, for me, yeah. Um, but you know what I've learned is, uh, 
I've learned to stop judging other companies. Um, for a long time, I was always like, I don't get why companies, I get all fired up. Like, I don't get why companies do this or treat people this way or do that, or do this. And I'm like, man, the longer that they treat their team like crap, the easier they make my job, right? Um, <laughs> and, and like for me, like I'm just a big fan of trust. So therefore, I just believe in treating people like adults. Sure. And I think adults know how to make the right decisions and then they don't need a bunch of rules. And I'd always be so fired up watching these companies have like, you know, policies that I think make no sense. And then I'm like, you know what? Like, I'm I'm not going to look at it other companies anymore and go, I just don't understand why they wouldn't do, you know. So if people somehow don't get that uh, walk in the walk or what you do day to day affects your your talent acquisition, then hmm. then they'll probably learn that the hard way, yeah. right? Yeah, it kind of shakes out in the uh, at the end of the day. No, that's that's interesting because I, I I see uh, there's a company here local in Philly that that focuses on what they call um, talent uh, relationship marketing. I think so, and it talks about this whole nuance. It made me kind of think of the idea is, hey, how closely are these two things connected? And I like that take on it, right? Because it's a natural evolution or progression of who we are and how we treat people. And, and uh, you know, it's kind of like a hey, what comes around? You know, the golden rule of business. You know, you treat people the way you want to be treated, and it's going to come back to you one way or the other. Uh, but let me talk about this idea of diversity here for a second, Will, because this is another question I ask a lot of the people that are on my show, because far too often I see diversity considered like a calm item that needs to be checked off. Like, oh, we need to check that off, right? And to me, that's like the, the, the complete antithesis of what we should be looking at it as, right? That we miss, if we look, treat it that way, we miss the entire point and the entire value of why a diverse workforce matters, right? Because it delivers to us those different experiences and perspectives of skilled employees, and it makes us a stronger company. I mean, do you agree with that notion that we can't treat it as a, as a column item and it has to be, we have to really invest in it from the value that, the opportunity of value that it brings to our organization? I'm starting to, um, you know, what's crazy is, uh, I think being a Philly based company, you, uh, get the oper you get a, you get a different pool. So I think the opportunity to at least be, uh, racially diverse is, is a bit easier. So I'm, I'm, I'm doing this call today from our San Diego office. Mm -hmm. And something that I realized is in Philly, we're extremely racially diverse. Um, and, but in San Diego, we're not. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. So if you look at, if I look at my company overall, we look pretty racially diverse. But then if you separate out the two offices, I was like, ooh, not as much. And you know, it, it helped me to realize a little bit, like, man, I might need to be a little bit more purposeful about Sears diversity. Uh -huh. um, the other thing is, there was this really good podcast um, that I had listened to, where a guy was talking about where people store their ketchup based on where they live. And in Europe, UK, it's typically stored in the cupboard. In the United States, ketchup is stored in the fridge. And he goes, if you were to ask somebody what's next to your ketchup, right? You're working on an ad campaign for mustard. Um, you know, if you had somebody from the UK and somebody from the US sitting in on that brainstorm, you would actually get a broader understanding and better ideas because you would get a broader perspective, right? Um, because people come from different backgrounds in terms of where they store their ketchup. And then he talked about, he was an engineer at Twitter, and he talked about that same thing as it relates to diversity. And he's saying you actually build a better product when you have diverse people. And it was the first time that diversity to me was mentioned in a way that wasn't about like, it's the right thing to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like, if you actually want to build a better business, if you want to make a better product, you probably need to get more than just white guys coding that product. And he was talking about Twitter in that, in that instance yeah. specifically. Yeah. And for me at that moment, it really clicked that um, that diversity is something that makes you a better company. It doesn't just make you a nice company. Now on gender, 
I mean, Sears always been somewhere between probably 60 and 80% female. Um, so, uh, so for women, like, I mean, we've always been very gender diverse as a tech company, but I think we have a little bit of work to do out here in San Diego on, on, on racial diversity. Look, I, I love that story, the, the ketchup story. I think that really hammers at home because, you know, and as uh, I, this won't be released for a couple of weeks, but as we're talking, you know, the uh, political conventions are happening. And I always get frustrated by that process because it, it simplifies these big, complex issues down to sound bites, right? And I think we're just like underserved by that, right? And this kind of brings me back to what you talked about in the beginning is that, listen, we it's it's much more about – the the ranking on the you know, search results page and then what's behind that and I, I've noticed lately you've been talking about hey what are the actions that we take or that you know consumers take when they find results and I know that's very important to you can you kind of share with me and it's kind of be the last thing I'll kind of explore here can you share with me how you help your clients understand that listen the sound bites of search don't nearly matter as much as the the path that you're leading someone down. I mean, how do you, because even, even if they're the right kind of DNA and they want to be that, right? When they meet you, they might, it might take a little bit of an education, a little bit of a process because look, diving into those actions are not for the faint of heart, right? Because you have to think through very specifically what's happening, where you want it, where you want them to go. You got to know that journey with some, at least some specificity. So you can give them kind of the, the, the GPS of where you want them to head. I mean, how do you, is there an education process when you're onboarding a new client or is it, um, you know, to help me understand that process a little bit and why it's so important to how you execute. You know, it is a it's a pretty decent lift on education um, because a lot of people are they've been told and and I've been part of the problem. So I'm not like here to say I'm holier than thou. In the early days of search, you know, it's oh, give me your money, I'll go get your rankings. I don't need to know that much about your business because I understand how Google works, right? I understand I get you to the top of the search engines, and then. Somewhere along the path, I think that just got a little boring to me. Um, it's like, yeah, I can get something to the top of Google, but like, I don't really know if that's the right thing to do. Um, I'll be speaking with a, a company uh, tomorrow, and they're a huge golf brand. And they said, oh, you know, we want to rank better for the word golf shorts. And I said, if you look at the top 10 results on Google, there's only one of them there that's actually like a manufacturer or a brand. All the other ones are um, aggregators, you know, um, Dick Sporting Goods, who sells all the brands. And it's like, I think we just need to stop and sometimes look at look at what Google's choosing to to rank and say, okay, there's only one brand on the first page of Google for the word golf shorts, and it's Under Armour out of 10 results, right? So then for me, I go, let's stop and think about all those machines and all those smart people at Google have determined, potentially, that brands, individual brands, aren't what people want for this search. And when you stop and show people like the search results, they go, oh, yeah, actually, yeah, I mean, that kind of makes sense. Like Google has seen the word golf shorts searched 30,000 times a month. That's 360,000 times a year. For the last, you know, 15 years, you add up all those data points and whether they were on mobile or desktop, if what they searched for before and afterwards, Google's pretty good at knowing what the right results are, the the right result set to show is. And I often say that if you look at what Google's showing, it gives you a peek into what people probably want. And then everybody goes, oh, I've never looked at Google that way. It's almost like a research tool. They've looked at it as something to say, how do I get to the top of it? And they go, well, maybe you shouldn't get to the top of it. Hmm. Because, you know, what Google's got ranked at the top is all local business. So take the word like SEO company. You type in the word SEO company into Google, it's going to show you local results. And then most of the natural results are still local. Yeah. Over the years, Google realized that the people who searched for that were small businesses. 
and that those people weren't looking for national level firms like Sphere that were really expensive. They were looking for somebody, you know, smaller and local. So eventually the search results and the machine learning learned that, that was, it was better to put local results for the word SEO company with much lower link totals, much lower domain authority, much smaller brands than a big company like Sierra because it wasn't the right match. Hmm. And like that's the example when people come to me and say things like, oh, I want to rank for SEO company. I go, look at the results, man. Google's telling you that, that only local people, not only, but mostly local people are searching for this. And if you're telling me that you're a national brand, there's a disconnect there. So maybe we shouldn't get you to the top of Google um, for this word. Let me go find the words where Google is showing companies like yours. And then they go, damn, you know what, Will? That makes a lot of sense. I like it. That's, that's, uh, that's really good advice. So listen, Will, help my audience. Uh, you know, where, If they want to learn more about Sear or if you have anything coming up you know, you know, soon in the next couple of months, like what should they do? Where should, where should they go? Uh, so, you know, Google us. <laughs> um, I always say, if you can't find me on Google, that's a problem. Uh, <laughs> so Google me, uh, I'm Will with one L, um, you know, check us out. I mean, we, we have, uh, great events at our office. So I think we have one coming up on August 11th. And I mean, we've got people coming in from, uh, for half a day, uh, 35 bucks from the UK, from, uh, as far away as Vancouver, Canada. So we've got like, I've got this network. Uh, of people that I've either done favors for or just you know helped out when I could or they want to help me out and they're willing to come to Philly to share their knowledge and I know when I see these people on stages everywhere else it's always over a thousand bucks when me and other people like that are speaking sure. and we do it, we do it for thirty five dollars in Philly in our space and we give all the money to their charities so um, you know that's one of the things that I'm really trying to push more these days it's like we're you know we're paying tons of rent to have an event space that we don't even use that often, specifically to help educate Philly's marketers a little bit better, Philly's PR people, you know. So um, that's one of the things I'd really like to see us get more traction on because uh, I can fit up to 200 people. I'd love to be able to pack the house one of these days. That's great. That's great. That's I think that's uh, – and I'll put a link up to, to that event as well, and this will be out right before then, so I think it would be good timing. So listen, we've awesome. been speaking to uh, Will Reynolds. He is the founder of the digital marketing agency, Seer. They're located here in the Philadelphia region, and I've been chasing him down for months to get him on. He finally agreed, and Will, I can't thank you enough. I really enjoyed the conversation. Well, thanks so much for having me, Joel. I appreciate it. <laughs>